stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Uh, nothing. Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Welcome to week four of the good book. If, if this is your first time with us, what we're doing throughout this six-week series is simply trying to address some common questions, uh, uh, answer some common questions, address some common issues that people have in regards to this book, the Bible. Issues and questions that prevent people, maybe prevent you from describing this as good. And hey, if you've missed any of the weeks leading up to here and you have questions, you have issues, I just encourage you to go back, uh, watch the messages from the last few weeks, because obviously I can't cover everything that we, we've talked about. But just so we're on the same page, uh, real quick, I want to give once again just a quick recap of what we mean by the Bible. Uh, 66 total books make up what we call the Bible. Uh, two major sections, we have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. The Old Testament, referred to as the Hebrew Scriptures until about the 4th century, is a story of God and the Hebrew people who ended up be calling the Israelites, who ended up be calling the Jews. It's the story of God and the Hebrew people and God's covenant with them. 39 books, 28 different authors written over a period of about 2,000 years, all written before Jesus. Then we have the New Testament. New Testament is the story of Jesus and his church and God's new covenant available for all people. 27 books written by nine different authors, spans a period of less than 100 years, all written after Jesus' death and resurrection before the end of the first century. And the big idea of this series, I hope you remember by the time this series is over about these 66 documents, these 66 books that make up uh, what we call the Bible, is that the purpose of the Bible is not primarily for our information, but for our transformation. That God didn't reveal what he did through the writers of scripture to answer all of our questions or simply just give Give us more information about himself. He revealed what he did primarily for our transformation. We discovered that the ultimate purpose of the Bible is to lead us to Jesus, equip us to follow Jesus so that we're transformed by Jesus more into everything God created us to be. Which means the goal, my goal in this series is not to answer all of your questions or try to address all of your issues because neither one of those things are possible. My, my goal by the end of this series is that we all take one step closer toward viewing and engaging with the Bible through the proper lens ultimately so that God's goal of transforming you more into who he created you to be occurs in your life. Now what you need to know is one of the reasons that I chose to do this series is because while many people know some Bible stories, few people know the story of how we got the Bible. And knowing the story of how we got the Bible is almost as important as knowing what's in it because if you don't know the story of how we got the Bible, it's easy to dismiss the stories in the Bible. Knowing the story of how this came to be uh, not, not knowing the story how this came to be could cause so many of our issues and so many of our questions that we have just to continue to grow and intensify. But one of the things that makes this challenging for us is the way that we get a Bible is not the way the world got the Bible. When, see, when we get a Bible today, it's all chaptered, verse, mapped, and wrapped. But the problem is that's not how the world got the Bible. And so we're spending a few weeks just talking about how we got what we ended up calling the Bible. And what we've discovered, we looked at this, is Jesus didn't write the Bible. He didn't physically write it, but Jesus is the reason we have it. The story of how we got the Bible does actually not begin in the beginning. It doesn't begin in the first book of our English Bible, Genesis. It actually begins 
with Jesus. It, begin, it begins at the start of what we now call the New Testament with the four documents documenting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we call these four documents the Gospels, but they wouldn't be called that until over 200 years after they were, after they were written. I mean, the only reason we have a, the Bible, is because Jesus was discovered alive after he was crucified. If Jesus' life had ended on a Roman cross, you need to know that there would be no, the Bible, because there would have been no story to tell. The life of Jesus and the words of Jesus were not documented primarily because of what he taught, or they weren't documented because he was crucified. The only reason that some of Jesus' disciples chose to document the life of Jesus is because of what they and hundreds others saw. See, because they followed Jesus around for three years, and they listened to what he had to say, and that he claimed to be the Messiah, and he claimed to be the Son of God, and they heard him say that he, you know, they heard him predict his death, and that he was going to rise from the grave, but they didn't really believe that, that he was going to rise, because dead people stay dead, and then they saw him die. And when he died, they no longer thought that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, because Messiahs can't be killed, the Son of God cannot die. And then three days later, they found an empty tomb, and they saw Jesus, and hundreds saw Jesus with their own eyes. And that's when they knew that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. And something extraordinary happened that had to be documented. These four documents that we call the, the Gospels and the other, the other documents that make up what we now call the New Testament you, that you need to know, once again, they're all written during the first century. However, it's important to know that after they were, they were written, there was still no the Bible. There were only documents written by the apostles that gave first and second and third century Christ followers the stories and words and accounts of Jesus. Documents the second and third century church considered valuable and reliable and sacred and inspired and very quickly they considered scripture. 200 years before one of these ever existed. Now the question that we started, ask, that we, that we started answering last week that I'm going to continue to today is why did the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament, why did the Hebrew scriptures get included in our Bible? See, our Old Testament was not written to us as non-Jewish people. All, all, all the documents that make up our Old Testament were written long before Jesus to ancient Hebrews. So why did they end up in our Bible? I mean, how did they end up in the Christian Bible? And we started looking at last week, see, within a very short period of time, I mean within a couple years, after Jesus' resurrection, some of Jesus' apostles, who were Jewish, left Jerusalem and started traveling all over the Roman Empire to tell Gentiles about Jesus. And remember, a Gentile, when you read the word Gentile in, in the Bible, that's anyone who's non-Jewish. So that'd be you and me and most of us in this room. So the, the, these, they, 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 these apostles leave Jerusalem, travel all over the empire to tell Gen, Gentiles about, about Jesus, that he was the son of God. And they knew he was the son of God and believed he was the son of God because they saw him die and then rise from the grave. And that he came to give eternal life and redemption and to have that put their, you know, they put their faith in Jesus and proclaim to put their faith in Jesus. And in the first century, thousands and thousands of Gentiles all throughout the Roman Empire put their faith in Jesus. And the church exploded. And what we now call Christianity spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. And last week, we discovered that only after Gentiles became enamored with Jewish Jesus, 
And the reason they became enamored with Jewish Jesus was because they, because they end up putting their faith in Jewish Jesus. They end up asking Jesus to be the forgiver of their sins and lead their life because he, they believe he died for their sins and then rose from the grave to prove he can give eternal life. They end up declaring Jesus as their Lord. So only after Gentiles became enamored with Jewish Jesus did they become enamored with the sacred texts of the Jews. The Hebrew scriptures, which are referred to in the first century as the law and the prophets. What we now call the Old Testament. See, before they put their faith in Jesus, Gentiles could care less about the Jews and they could care less about the Jewish scriptures. But in the first and second century, Gentile Christ followers began to embrace the sacred texts of the Jews as their own scripture. Now this is where it gets complicated. Uh, when the first century Gentile church was... Uh, was interested, while the first century Gentile church was interested in the Jewish scriptures, they weren't the least bit interested in Judaism. See, the first century Gentile church, they adopted the Jewish scriptures as their own, but they weren't interested in adopting the Jewish religion and the Jewish culture. They basically said, we want your texts, but we're not interested in your religion. And this caused huge conflict and huge tension in the first and second century between the Jews and the Gentile Christ followers. What you need to know is in the first century, Gentile Christ followers' interest in the Hebrew scripture was simply Christological. Now I know that's a new word for some of you, but essentially what this means is they went into Gentile, the first century church, Gentile church, went into the Hebrew scriptures, not looking for the Jewish religion, but looking for Jewish Jesus, the Christ. Their only interest was in the backstory to Jesus' story. And what you need to know about well, our Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is that. That the Old Testament is the backstory to the story, which is the, the story, which is Jesus. Unfortunately, this is not the lens through which most people view and engage the Old Testament, which has created all kinds of issues and all kinds of questions that people have with the Bible. From my experience and from my observation and from many, many conversations I've had with people over the years, I found out, I've seen that the majority of people's issues, the majority of people's questions with the Bible stem from something in the Old Testament. And people go, man, how could a good God say all the things he said in the Old Testament? How could a good God do all the things he did in the Old Testament? And you have these, it brings some, it made some issues that God seems like a violent God, a wrath-filled God, a vengeful God. He doesn't seem like a loving God. He doesn't seem like a good God. And you're like, a good God would not act like that. And so, you know, some of us who are Christ followers, like, we feel like we got to defend that. And so we try to smooth off the rough edges of the Old Testament. And we try to defend God's behavior and explain it away, which only creates more issues for the people who actually have issues. And then many other people, you know, they view the Old Testament as a rule book, and that creates all kinds of issues. You know, because you, those rules, they seem archaic, and they seem unsophisticated, and narrow-minded, and barbaric, and old-fashioned, and unrealistic. And, you know, some of you have been told and some of you believe that everyone must live by all these rules in order to live up to God's standards, in order to, to have, you know, God's blessing upon you and to prosper, in order to go to heaven when this life is over. And so you've been guilted into it or have you forced others into it or forced yourself into it or others have forced you into it because the Bible says so. And that's done nothing but create more questions and more issues. And maybe caused you to walk away or you're considering walking away from God and from faith. And it doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. See, I believe all those issues stem from not viewing and engaging the Old Testament through this lens. 
I believe most people's issues would be so quickly resolved if they started engaging and viewing the Old Testament through this lens. And so today, I'm going to quickly walk through the entire Old Testament to help you begin viewing it through this lens. Put on a seatbelt, by the way. Next week, I'm going to get a little bit more into how to engage with it, how to read it and apply it uh, you know, through, through, through this lens. And this is important because, listen, if you don't view and engage the Old Testament through this lens, you're going to end up dismissing the Old Testament. If you dismiss it, you're going miss to miss out on what God has for you through it. If you don't start viewing and engaging through it through this lens, the, your issues with the Bible will continue to grow, which will cause issues with God and issues with faith and may cause you to unnecessarily walk away. If you don't engage and view the Bible through this lens, you will never understand it in it. You'll never understand the Old Testament through this proper context. So you will apply it wrongly for yourself and you apply it wrongly for others and create unnecessary issues with others from others with the Bible and with God. But the more you can view and engage the Old Testament as the backstory to the story of Jesus, the more your mind is going to be blown by the lengths that God went through for you because he loves you. So you ready to go? Here we go. Uh, in short, the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, chronicles God's activity in history to, to prepare the world for a Savior, to prepare the world for your Savior. Last week, we saw God show up in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, as God the Creator. But quickly in Genesis, he, puts, he takes off his creator hat, and he puts on his hat as God the Founder. And he founds a nation in order to bring redemption to the world. And he begins with one man who had no family, who had no children, and that man's name was was Abraham. And about 2100 BC, God promised 99-year-old Abraham a son who would become eventually become a nation whom God would bless the world through. And here was the original wording. I will make you, God saying to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This has become known as the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is basically God saying he is going to bless the entire world through Abraham's descendants. And then so through Abraham, God births the nation. He births the Hebrew people who would later become known as the Israelites. But you got to know that from the very start, God founded the nation of Israel as a divine means to a divine end. He founded the nation of Israel for the purpose of blessing the entire world through. And before the Hebrews, before they became a nation, they actually found themselves enslaved in Egypt by the world's superpower at, the, at that time, Pharaoh. But unlike Egypt's pagan gods, Abraham's God was mobile. And at the right time, God sends a Hebrew named Moses as his representative. And Moses speaks that famous line uh, on behalf of God to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh, he's completely unwilling to do that. So God demonstrates his power and his authority in a way that only a Pharaoh can understand with power and with violence. And Pharaoh finally frees the Hebrew people. And they were no longer a small family anymore. They're a huge nation now. And they, they, he frees the Hebrew people and they leave as a nation, a wealthy nation. And Moses leads the nation of the, the, the Hebrew people to Mount Sinai 
Sinai where God establishes a covenant with them, which is called the Mosaic Covenant, later referred to as the law. And, and God says to the Hebrew people in the Mosaic Covenant through Moses, I will be your God and you will be my people. And as my people, you're going to be separate from all the other nations because I have a divine purpose for you. Through you, through my people, I am going to bless the entire world. So here's the laws, here's the contract, here's the covenant to live as my people so I can bless the world through you. And we think of these as the Ten Commandments, but it's more like 600 plus laws and commands. Those famous first ten, they're bit, kind of like a bit of table of contents for the rest of the Mosaic, the Mosaic Covenant. And God goes on and he says, I'm going to give you your own land. And if you obey me, when you get to the land, you are going to prosper. I'm going to bless you and you're going to prosper. But if you don't, if you start taking on the, you know, the gods and the, and the pantheon of gods and the polytheism and the customs of the nations around you, for the sake of a watching world who doesn't know me yet, I will punish you by giving you to the nations around you until you turn back to me. See, this Mosaic Covenant, the law, it was an, an inauguration of a covenant relation between God and the nation of Israel. And it was conditional in that God would only bless them and prosper them if they continued to follow his covenant with them. But it was unconditional in that God was going to bless the whole world through them one way or another regardless of what they did and what they didn't do. Now, real quick, I just want to say something about the laws and commands found in the Mosaic Covenant just, just for a quick second. Because Le the Leviticus, the third book of our English Old Testament, is where the majority of the detailed law is found. Which is why you, if you ever started reading the Bible at the very beginning on the first page, by the time you got to Leviticus, you're like, ugh! Right, because Genesis is awesome, and you read it's got stories, and Exodus, you know, Exodus is amazing, it's these stories. Then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, what in the world? Like, not only is this boring, but this is where all the seemingly archaic and unsophisticated and narrow-minded and barbaric and old-fashioned rules are. And you're like, man, if that's the case with God's rules and, you know, if that's the case with God's law, that must be the case with God. And I don't know if I want to have anything to do with God based on that. And so you kind of stopped reading Leviticus and you were done. And here's what you need to know. From my experience, I and mean, this is so true, the Mosaic Covenant has been the source of so many people people's issues with God and with the Bible and in turn so many people have cast God and the Bible to the side and as I said before it doesn't have to be that way and it should not be that way because the promises and the laws outlined in the Mosaic Covenant are not to you. The Mosaic Covenant was given by God to ancient Hebrew people. A people that, got, that, that had a divine purpose and a divine end of God blessing the whole world through. They, they were the laws and they were the promises that set them apart relationally and, spir and spiritually and sexually and morally as God's people. To be holy as he is holy in an ancient world. He set them apart from all the other nations in an ancient world that, that God wanted to bless the world through. Now back to the storyline. Eventually... The Israelites arrived in the land that God promised them, and they decided they wanted to have a king. But you need to know it was never God's intention for them to have for, for Israel to have a king other than himself. But they begged for one because more and more and more they stopped looking up and started looking around. And the more they started looking around, they started wanting to be like the other nations. 
God did not want the Israelites to be like the other nations. God's divine purpose, his divine end for Israel was to stand out from the other nations so that he could actually bless the nations of the world through them. And the more they looked around at the other, nation, at the other nations, the more they lost sight of that and the more they started wanting to be greater than the other nations. Well, eventually, Israel got a whole bunch of kings. Most of them were complete disasters who led Israel further away from God and further away from God's divine purpose for them. But they had one who didn't, and his name was David. And therefore, God made a covenant with him. We call it the Davidic covenant. And in this covenant, God promises David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. He's basically saying to David, I will fulfill my divine purpose of blessing the entire world through a king in your bloodline. This promised king in David's bloodline would later be described as the Messiah. And then the first century church believed that Jesus was that promised king, that Jesus was that promised Messiah. Which, by the way, you should know that whenever in, in one of the Gospels, in, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whenever you see a genealogy of Jesus and all those names, Jesus' like family line, the whole reason they're doing that is to show that Jesus was in David's bloodline. Kind of a big deal for him in order for him to be the Messiah. But back to the story. By the time the Israelites got their third king, they got something else all the nations had as well. They got themselves a temple. You need to know if there had been no king, there would have been no temple. And then you also need to know the nation of Israel, they did not need a king and they did not need a temple. Both of those were attempts to be like the other nations instead of being a blessing to the nations of the world. Well, once that temple was built, though, it became a really big deal to the Israelites. Their entire faith wrapped around it. Because this is where they made their sacrifices. See, in the Mosaic Covenant, you, you know, God kind of outlined, like, when you break the covenant, with, when, when they broke the covenant with him, when they sin, they had to go make a sin offering. They had to go take a, an unblemished lamb and slaughter it, and the, and, the, and the blood of that unblemished lamb would make atonement for their sins. So, and they, so once the temple was built, they began to do those things. They began to make those sin offerings in the temple or at the temple. The second reason the temple was a big deal to them is because it was a reminder to them that they were God's chosen people. Because God chose to fill the temple with his presence. However, God said right up front to them, I do not live here. I am a mobile God. Just ask Pharaoh. I visited him a few hundred years ago, and they still ain't gotten over it yet. See, the Israelite temple was, was different than all the other na surrounding nations' temples. Not different because of the way it looked. The Israelite temple looked basically no different than any other nation's temples. It was different because it was without one thing that all temples had which was an image of the God whom the temple was built for. See, temples were all built for a specific God. And in every temple, there was a God vault where a statue or an image of the God for whom the temple was built was put into. Well, the God vault in the Hebrew temple was called the Holy of Holies. But there was no image of God. There was, there was no statue of God of who the, the Israelites referred to as Yahweh in the Holy of Holies, in the God vault in their temple. And why? Because God in the Mosaic Covenant said right up front, you are to create no image of me. I am the one and only God, and I cannot be reduced to an image. 
See, Israelites' God, Yahweh, was a spirit, the Holy Spirit. Israelites' God couldn't be put into a temple. And unlike the pagan gods, Israelites' God chose to inhabit his temple with his presence. But only for a time being. Back to the story. Because the Israelites kept breaking the Mosaic Covenant, they started to suffer And they started to fall apart as a nation. So God started sending prophets. And he would send these prophets to warn the kings and warn the people to turn back to him. To keep their end of the covenant with him. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that a great deal of the Old Testament is is the writing of these prophets. And every one of them is addressing a specific historical context. They're, They're addressing something going on with one of the kings at the specific time. But every once in a while... The prophets would look beyond their immediate historical context to a future day when God would fulfill his divine purposes of doing something through Israel for the world. And that he would do it through a Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Son of God, born in the line of David. And because of that, every time an Israelite prophet talked about the future Messiah, the Israelites assumed that he would be a military king. They assumed that he would be a political king, like David was, who would restore them to their military and political power to be the greatest nation on the earth. And that's why they never understood one particular prophecy from Isaiah. See, Isaiah was a prophet who wrote 600 years before the time of Jesus. And most of his prophecies make sense within the context. He's addressing a very specific issue going on at the time. But there's one portion of Isaiah that looks beyond the immediate context to the ultimate fulfillment of how God was going to hold up his end of the deal by blessing the whole world through the Israelites. And Isaiah, he prophesied about a servant whose suffering would save them, the Israelites, and save the entire world. And the details, you need to know the details of this suffering servant, it radically conflicted with Israel's sacrificial system that took place in the temple. And here's what God said through Isaiah to the Israelite people. Surely he, like they're like, who is he, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And going, wait, a, a person paid the price for someone else's sin? Like that's what the sacrificial system's for. That's what all the lambs we kill for and they shed their blood for. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him. And they're like, who is this him? The iniquity of us all. It goes like, man, God lays our iniquities on animals, not on a person. Isaiah's like, stick with me. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a, like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, like he dies? Yeah, he dies. Why? For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned to a grave. He, he was buried with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth like he he died for our sin even though he's without sin like Isaiah none of this is making any sense and after he suffered after he died and was buried he will see the light of life Like, like that sounds like he comes back to life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors 
Now the first century Gentile church could not help but see this as a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. First century Jews who did not put their faith in Jesus did not see it that way and still do not see it that way. As a matter of fact, still to this day, many Jewish synagogues will skip over chapter 53 of Isaiah when reading from their own Hebrew scriptures. But back to the story. For years, God sent prophets to warn the Israelites to turn back to him or else he's going to have to take drastic measures. And for years they didn't listen. For years they didn't keep up their end of the covenant. So God finally had enough and he sent the Israelites into exile. And in 586 B.C., 586 years before Jesus walked this earth, the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. And they broke down the walls and they burned down the temple. Thank God, God wasn't home that day. And they burned down the temple and they took the Israelites as slaves to Babylon. And at that point in time, their divine purpose of God blessing the world through them seemed all but over. But God. But God, but God always holds up his end of the promise. God always holds up his end of the covenant. And during their time in exile, God continued to speak through the prophets to his people. And he continued to tell them of a coming promised Messiah in the line of David, whom their divine purpose of, of, of who, who his divine purpose of bless, of, for them of blessing the world through would be fulfilled through. And once again, the Israelites, they just kept thinking this was going to be a political and a military king, king who God would use to restore them to political and military power. They never got it. But after 70 years... God kept his promise to restore them. And the Israelites, who were now called the Jews, were able to return to Jerusalem. And they eventually rebuilt their temple. However, God never filled it again with his presence. Because he had different plans on where his spirit was going to reside in the future. The Jews no longer had a king. So they eagerly awaited for the promised Messiah to come and save them and restore them as a nation. However, it didn't take long for them to break their end of the covenant, deal with God again. And that's when God went into silence. But before he does, he sends one final prophet named Malachi. And through Malachi, God tells the Jews that he will fulfill his divine purpose of blessing the world through them. And that he will do it through the promised Messiah in the bloodline of David. And that, but that they won't, wouldn't hear from him again until he was good and ready to send the Messiah. And that's how the Old Testament ends. That's how the Hebrew Scriptures ends. That's where the backstory to the story ends. For the next 400 years, God is silent. No prophets, no sign of God, and no Messiah. And during those 400 years, they come under the rule of the Roman Empire. And that's why as time went on, their eagerness for the Messiah grew and grew and grew. See the backstory to the story? It's, it's so amazing. Over and over and over again in, the, in our Old Testament, the Jewish people reminded that they were a divine means to a divine end. And that's not a negative thing. That's a meaningful thing. Because if you want to live a meaningful life, you've got to become a means to an end that's bigger than you. That is the meaning of meaningful. They were divine means to the divine end of God blessing the whole world through them. See, the entire backstory is history with us in mind. 
with you in mind, with the world in mind. The entire backstory is history with a divine purpose, a purpose that was announced by God to Abraham and fulfilled 2,200 years later when a Jewish carpenter named Joseph discovered that his fiancée was pregnant. And that's when the story that was announced by Isaiah and the other prophets began. And the Apostle Paul, who knew the Hebrew scriptures inside and out, summarized it best when he wrote this not long after Jesus' death and resurrection. But when the set time had fully come, when God had finally got everything and everyone in place just the way he wanted, God, the God who was silent for 400 years but certainly wasn't absent and still, sent his son, sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law. He was a Hebrew to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sonship. He's saying just when, the, just when the time was right, God did what he promised to do through the Hebrew people. He sent his son. He sent the Messiah to bless the whole world. He sent Jesus so that you, so that we might be adopted as God's sons and daughters through faith in Jesus. By asking Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life. Which leads to the question just real quick, like why didn't and why don't most Jews accept Jesus as the Messiah? Well, they didn't during a time they had all kinds of issues with Jesus because Jesus messed with how they interpreted their Mosaic law and Jesus messed with how they wrongly viewed the temple. Furthermore, as I talked about many times today, they're thinking he can't possibly be the Messiah because he's not a political king. He's not a military king. He doesn't meet our expectations of what we want the Messiah to be. And you know why that was their expectation? Is because they lost sight of their purpose. They took their eyes off of up and they started looking around and they started interpreting that the Messiah was going to bless them so they could be powerful so they could be the greatest nation instead of God blessing them in order to bless the world through them. See, our Old Testament is the story of God preparing the world for your Savior, for our Savior. The Old Testament is the backstory to the story. And that's why by the second century, the Gentile church adopted the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures as Christian Scripture. And they eventually gave it a new name, the Old Covenant. And later, they, the Latin term would be used, the Old Testament. And why old? Because the Gentile church followers of Christ recognized that God through Jesus had done something new. That God had fulfilled all his covenant promises. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. That God fulfilled all his covenant promises he made to the nation and people of Israel. And that he had established a new covenant that's available to all people. A new covenant that would be inaugurated by the Jesus shed blood on the day that he rose from the grave. But through the third century, still know the Bible. Just the Hebrew scriptures. Some stories of the accounts of Jesus. And some correspondence by a famous church planner to his Gentile congregations around the Roman Empire. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week. But I want to leave you with one very important idea before we go to chew on. And that is, the Old Testament was not written to you. But it is for you. Our Old Testament was written to ancient Hebrew people 
It was not written to you. It was God's covenant with Israel, not to you. However, it is for you and for me because it's the backstory to the story of Jesus. It's the backstory to the new covenant that God established that's available to the whole world. And the more you understand that and the more you appreciate this backstory, the more you're going to be in awe of what God did through Jesus for you. So as strongly as I can, I encourage you to start viewing the Old Testament through this lens. Don't take the verses out of context. Don't take the promises out of context and apply them to you. Don't use it to support your wants and your desires and your purposes. View it through the lens of God's divine purposes of, of, of for the world through the Hebrew people. If you view, view it to support your wants and your desires and your purposes, you are going to misinterpret it. And you're going to miss out on what God has for you through it. Remember, this is what the Hebrew people did and why they missed their own Messiah. Listen, don't try to tidy it up. Don't try to sand off the rough edges. And don't try to defend God's activity. God doesn't need defended. Over and over and over, when you view it through the proper lens, you see that God never changes. And he went to great lengths in the ancient world to fulfill his redemptive promises in the world because he loves the world. And definitely don't view it as God's rule book to you. If you do, your issues are going to grow. View it as the backstory to the story of Jesus. Now next, next week we're going to talk about how to engage with it, how to read it, and properly apply it through the, at the lens of being the backstory to, to the story. But I want to leave you with one question to think about today, and that is, how are you currently viewing the Old Testament? How are you currently viewing it? Is that the lens through which Jesus would have you view it? Not is that the lens through which your mom wants you to view it or your background wants you to view it or what you like or don't like. Is that the lens through which Jesus would have you view it? Listen, if you do not view it through the proper lens, you are going to end up missing Jesus. But when you view it through the proper lens, it will help you lead, lead you to Jesus and the life that he has for you. That he came to this world to give. That he died to give. And that he rose from the grace to, grave to give. And when you start to interact with Jesus through it, that's when you begin to realize how good it truly is. Hey, before we go, I want to just take a left turn here real quick. You know, here, here at Relevant, a um, uh, couple things. We want everyone to have a Bible. I mean, we just want every single person to have a Bible and read it as much as possible and get into it as much as possible. And, man, I just want that. And it's important for us that every time someone puts their faith in Jesus, the first thing they get in their hand is a new Bible. Right now, every person puts their faith in Jesus, you go get, you, you know, we say, hey, go to the next step area and we have something for you. Basically, what we're going to hand you is a Bible. And they're good, you know, they're fine. But, you know, they're just, you know, paperback Bibles. Nothing that you're necessarily going to want to keep the rest of your life. Just, and, but it's not great that day. And, but we're like, man, this has got to change. Like, we want to make sure that every person who puts their faith in Jesus has a Bible in their hand that inaugurates that day. The biggest decision of their life. And so we said, dude, let's. Let's have some awesome, relevant Bibles. And so we decided we were going we to design one. Now, the content's the same in it. Did you get that? <laughs> you can put that up there, Liz. Uh, but we have, these, we have these Bibles. This is like a soft 
leather, red, because it's all, red's awesome power color, by the way, power color. Uh, uh, so, so it's, got, it's soft leather. It's got relevant branding on it. And every person who puts their faith in Jesus in the future when these, when these arrive is going to get, the day they put their faith in Jesus is going to get one of these Bibles. It's going to be our gift to them, and it's going to inaugurate that day that they made that decision. However, we realize that so many other people who are part of around, like you want, would want one of these too. And you, my daughter's like, Dad, do I got to put my faith in Jesus to get another one of these? Like, again, you know what I mean? I'm like, you've already done that, but good news. So we can, we can all get one of these Bibles. And here's a cool thing. So you can buy one of these Bibles right now for $35. And every time you buy a Bible, one of these relevant Bibles for $35, here's what you're doing. You are basically buying two more Bibles that you're going to gift to a person in the future who puts their faith in Jesus. Every time you buy one, you're really buying three, two of them are going to be gifts. You're like, can I just buy one? No. Uh, you're going to end up buying three. Uh, and so you could buy three for 35 bucks. It's awesome. We hand you one. This will be your Bible for the rest of your life. It's going to be great until you leave relevant, and then you're not going to like that Bible at all. See what I did right there? Uh, so here's what you can do. If you, <laughs> uh, uh, here's what you can do. Uh, if you want one of these Bibles, these Bibles are going to arrive in August. If you're like, I want to make sure I get one of these. I would love to have one of these. And I want to make sure we, you know, can start getting these in the hands of other people. Pre-order them now. For the next couple weeks, you can pre-order at the apparel store, um, you know, before or after the gathering over the next couple weeks. Or online. Uh, um, on our store online, you can uh, pre-order one of these, and then when they get here in August, you'll be the first one to have it, and we'll have your name, we'll, we'll hand you one, and you can, you know, it'll be awesome. So I'm really excited about this uh, uh, in the future. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for today. I know this was a lot of information, and I talked really fast, and uh, um, my voice is almost gone, <laughs> and uh, I pray that uh, even with this amount of information, we walk out of here just excited to view and engage the Bible, maybe in a different way, through the lens of Jesus. And I pray ultimately that it leads us to Jesus. And through that, you transform us more into who you created us to be. Uh, thank you for loving us and proving that over and over and over and over and over again through the words written in this good book. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.